Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We have another excellent show for you today. Our guest is founding partner of Better Tomorrow Ventures, an early stage VC fund focused on building the future of fintech. Before that, he co-founded NerdWallet, a site dedicating to helping consumers make better decisions with their money. In today's episode, we discuss scuba diving, but also startup investing in the world of fintech. We get into some of the opportunities going forward from disruption in products, user experience and distribution models, to how some non-fintech companies may be able to start leveraging the infrastructure to integrate financial services into other products. We touch on the next wave of fintech, banking as a service, and a future that may evolve into a far deeper set of automated financial services that greatly reduce friction and improve the experience for the consumer. Stay tuned to the end to hear some detail about our guest's new fund, Focus on pre-seed and seed stage fintech companies. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. Whether it's their monthly market wrap, top 10 visuals resource deck, or their quarterly economic summary, YCharts consistently arms advisors with the content and tools they need to turn their investment strategies into powerful discussions that truly resonate with clients. With Q1 behind us, YCharts will soon release their economic update visual deck covering topics ranging from market insights to interest rates, macroeconomic data, all packaged in a client-friendly PowerPoint deck that easily breaks down trends for more effective client and prospect meetings. See how YCharts can be your go-to resource for discussing the state of the markets, with templates and downloadable visuals, you can seamlessly incorporate into proposal reports or presentations to not only engage, but also to educate clients on their financial goals. Click on the link in the show notes to grab your copy of the visual deck and follow along when you register for YChart's economic update Q1 2024 webinar on May the 2nd. Don't forget, get 20% off your initial YChart's professional subscription when you start your free YChart's trial and tell them Meb sent you new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Better Tomorrow Ventures founder, Jake Gibson. Jake, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We're in LA Global Headquarters Quarantine, San Fran. (laughs) I just watched The Little Mermaid with my three-year-old. He said it was a little scary. You got two twins, but I also heard you're a big diver. Where's my favorite dive spots? My favorite dive spot right now is in Belize, Placencia. It's one of the places where you go to dive in the open ocean with whale sharks. I've been there both of the last two years during whale shark diving season to to try to see some. Two follow-up questions. Whale, what what time of year is that? And two, is the big hole, the big blue hole or something? That's Belize, right? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of northern, like off the coast of northern Belize. Placencia is down in southern Belize. And the reason Placencia is special is because there's like an elbow in the continental shelf there that for some reason attracts a lot of massive schools of fish that come in to feed and breed. You know, those giant balls of fish like you see in Finding Nemo, there'll be a bunch of them out there right off the kind of continental shelf and the whale sharks eat them. And so they tend to breed around full moons between, I think it's like March or April and June. And so I've usually gone around the full moon in June 
which just turns into a remarkable trip too, because you're kind of out in the middle of nowhere under a full moon in the evenings. And then during the day you're spending six to eight hours out on a boat in the open ocean, like no land within sight, no bottom of the ocean within sight and just kind of hunting whale sharks in a sense. Out in the middle of nowhere sounds like a pretty good place to be quarantining right now. I did <laughs> out of college when I graduated college, my dad and I went on a fishing trip. He'd done the same with each of the boys and mine. We ended up going to Belize, but on the I little know. islands. The Keys. Yeah, yeah. The Key Cocker. Cocker, Corker, whatever they call it. Each ones. other. Went bone fishing. It was awesome. It was during Carnival. So we got, we got painted oh, yeah. with a bunch of paint. It was awesome. All right. Well, look, it's going to be a lot of fun. You know, you're now a venture capitalist angel investor. We'll get to that in a minute. It'll be, I think, particularly informative to at least burn through your background pretty quick to give the listeners a little bit of understanding where you came from, what you've been up to. So fellow, not engineer, but science guy, right? MIT undergrad? Yeah, I grew up wanting to be an engineer, but ended up studying math and finance. I got a little distracted. <laughs> Same. Yeah. So I mean, I spent my childhood sitting in front of a computer and teaching myself how to code and all that stuff and was convinced at a young age I was going to go to MIT and study computer science. But I started school right when the internet bubble burst. And so like a lot of people in my cohort ended up kind of switching over. A lot of my friends went into consulting. A lot of them went into banking or trading. I did the latter. I ended up studying math and quantitative finance at MIT and went to go into interest rate derivatives trading. So I was at JP Morgan. I was a prop trader from 2004 until 2008 when all the prop traders went away. Then I switched over to the sell side, trading interest rate swaps for another year or so. But during that time, I mean, basically from 2007 until the end there in early 2010, I was convinced I was leaving. I couldn't figure out how I was going to leave or what I was going to do because you don't learn a skill set on a trading floor that's transferable anywhere else. Took the GMAT, took the GRE, didn't really think that either one of those was was for me, though, and ultimately decided, you know what, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to go to California. I'm going to start something. Since nobody's going to hire me for what I have today, I'm just going to build the skill set myself. Like Instead of spending two years on business school, two years and some ungodly amount of money on business school, I'm just going to kind of create my own business school by trying to start a company. And that'll be my forcing function to like meet people and learn and all this other stuff. And if it doesn't work out, which it probably won't, then at least after two years, I'll have a skill set that maybe somebody will hire me for. And thankfully, I ended up joining up with a buddy of mine I've known since eighth grade. We grew up in Atlanta together. And he had also, I mean, he'd gone to Stanford while I was at MIT. We lived across the street from each other in New York. He worked at a hedge fund while I was at JP Morgan, or he worked at a series of hedge funds while I was at JP Morgan. But he'd also gotten laid off in 2008 and ultimately started working on what would become NerdWallet. And so when I left, JP Morgan, I immediately joined on with him and helped him build that. What was the original vision, by the way? Because I don't know if I've heard the origin story. Were you guys just kind of kicking around all sorts of different startup ideas? Was this one that had been gnawing at you for a while? Where did yeah. it come from? So it was, kind of, it was Tim's idea. And the original vision was effectively Kayak for credit cards. Like if you look at like by that point, you know, we had Kayak. We had all these other products like Web 2.0 was starting. We had iPhones. But then if you tried to find any sort of financial products online and like the classic story is his sister had just sold a company and she was trying to get her finances together and reached out to Tim like, Tim, you're a finance expert. Can you help me? Like, I don't even know like what credit card I should get, like where what savings accounts I should get, like where I should park my money. And so he went and started doing some research online 
And the world at the time, it was basically like bankratecreditcards.com and then this massive long tail of random bloggers who were operating out of their basements effectively. And all the content was garbage. Like it was basically all just, it was, we joked it was NASCAR. Like every pixel on Bankrate's website or on creditcards.com's website were optimized for monetization. And there was no customization. There was no transparency. Like if you were really trying to make the right decision for you and your own personal finances, nobody was helping you. And so he started working on this idea that would kind of become like a kayak for credit cards. And originally we thought it was just going to be a lifestyle company. We'd kind of work from home. So I ended up moving to California. He actually stayed in New York for a while. We're working from home, trying to get this thing up to like one or two million in revenue. And then we thought we'd either live off of it or sell it. But after a couple of years of that, realized there was a much bigger opportunity ahead of us. And then he moved out here. We started hiring people and then it was kind of off to the races. What was the evolution of the company? Is it, did you guys, so it's bootstrap from the get go. Did you eventually take any funding and then how to the eventually trajectory uh, for you exiting? Yeah. So we, we bootstrapped it initially mostly because we didn't know any better. Or I shouldn't say mostly, but partly because we didn't know any better. Like I said, it was just a, the two of us. We thought of it as a lifestyle company. This was back in like 2009, 2010. So the ecosystem as it exists today with like all the angels and the scouts and all the micro VCs and like all the money that's out there today didn't exist back then. And all the content there is out there around like how to raise money, why to raise money, all that stuff, how to build a startup that didn't exist back then either. And so we just thought we were building a company. We weren't even really thinking of this as like a startup the way you think about it today. And we just didn't think anybody would fund us. Like we're not going to go knock on Sequoia's doors. Just like two schmucks that just left their jobs that basically just got laid off from their jobs on wall street building a product that was intentionally under monetizing relative to all of our competition. It was moving into an extremely crowded space during the middle of the biggest recession and previously the biggest recession in our lifetimes. And so we're like, nobody's going to give us money for this. That's insane. And we also just kind of thought that as long as we kept control over it, we'd be able to do what's right by the end consumer or that's how it evolved. Like once we actually started getting some traction and we thought people might actually want to invest in this thing, we were like, why would we give up that control? Why would we raise money if the whole strategy here is we want to be consumer first, build the brand around that, gain market share around that, rather than trying to go like we thought we'd be forced down the bank rate or creditcards.com path and trying to squeeze our users for every dollar we could. And then eventually we got to the point where we just it wouldn't have made sense for us to raise money anyway because we couldn't spend it fast enough. We had nothing that we could have invested in that would have really moved it. Like we were making enough money that having to raising more money would not necessarily have changed any of our decisions that changed a year after I left. So I was there until 2014. We were kind of in the middle of a massive inflection point growth wise at that point, we're hiring a ton of people and ultimately Tim decided you know, we should probably have a war chest. Like if the cycle turns or something, like we should have some money. If we want to make any acquisitions, we should have some money in the bank. And so that's when they went out and raised their first round of funding. I think it was January or something, early 2015, which was a, I don't remember exactly, it was something like a $70 million Series A. That's the only primary capital we've ever raised. Are you totally dissociated with the company now? Did you just say, look, I'm, I'm going to start procreating. I want to go diving. You know, I'm not on the board. I'm not involved day to day. Tim and I are, you know, I was best best man at his wedding. Tim and I are still good friends and he keeps me posted on everything that's happening over there. I still know some of the executives and stuff. I, I stay involved to the extent that I can, but it's more like I'm the arm's length, like biz dev and corp dev person just because of 
what I come across in my day-to-day job and how that might help with a nerd wallet, helping keep them on top of like all the different things that are happening in the fintech space. But that's it. That and I'm a, I'm a shareholder. So you started investing at the same time. This is the vintage round 2014 on your own. What was the sort of evolution to where we get today? So my kids were born in December of 2013. And at that point, I had hired a few people to come in and replace all of the functions that I was doing at NerdWallet. I hired a new COO. It was just like one intern. You're like, I can do this all. I just one intern. Which was part of the problem. Like I didn't realize that I wasn't doing my job particularly well because I was spreading myself too thin and not being particularly strategic when there were much better people out there that could do the jobs. So I helped him hire a new COO who was going to be my replacement. I hired a head of finance. We hired a managing editor. We hired a few other roles like that to fill out the senior suite. And then once they all came on board in March of 2014, I stepped down. So at that point, my kids were about three months old and I took the rest of 2014 off. I just went home and largely decompressed. I can't say I took the time off because I had two infants at home, but it was really just kind of disentangling myself from nerd wallet and trying to figure out what I was going to do next in my life. And towards the end of that year, I'd started helping out friends of mine that had recently started companies kind of informally advising, mentoring, whatever, just giving me an excuse to get out of the house and and use my brain again and, and talk to adults and stuff like that. And I really enjoyed that. I found it to be extremely rewarding and was able to like really help them out, which I liked it also made me feel a little bit better because I kind of felt like I, I really sucked at my job at NerdWallet once NerdWallet hit a certain scale. But being able to go back and work with founders that were in those very, very early stages and help them avoid a lot of the mistakes that we had made seemed like that was kind of the best way for me to, to leverage myself and make an impact. So after I'd been doing that for a little while, I decided to start putting my money where my mouth is. And so I'd say also kind of early 2015, started angel investing, and I've been doing that full time up until last summer when I made the transition from angel investor to somebody on Twitter the other day was like, Jake, you're a full-blown VC now. And I, I challenged me to update my Twitter profile accordingly, which which I did. So I'm now no longer an angel. I'm a full-blown VC doing the air quotes for the people that can't see me right now. So let's talk about it. So you're raising a new fund, Better Tomorrow Ventures. Let's start broad though. Your background, obviously FinTech, and maybe as a lead into this, I'm sure the people listening would probably love to say, hey, there's a founder of incredibly successful fintech company as a lead in. Is there anything that you learned from NerdWallet as far as fintech space and, and meaning from the consumer side, opportunities, mistakes that people make that lead into kind of the, the, the world of fintech today, the state of fintech, and we yeah. can wrap on this for a while? So I guess there's kind of a couple of themes that I tend to fall back on when it comes to fintech. And some of this is from my nerd wallet experience, but a lot of it's just from the fact that I was so steeped in kind of traditional finance before that, having been at a big bank and been on an interest rate trading floor, which gives you a pretty unique, you know, relative to kind of equities and stuff like that, which tend to be very company specific. Like being in the interest rate world gives you a much more macroeconomic view on how, how the world works. And then having lived through the financial crisis and everything, just you learn a lot about the plumbing. <laughs> and so a couple of things that I always come back to, one is that in a lot of financial services and most of financial services, I would say, especially on the consumer side, distribution is everything. And so I think there's a lot of product focused founders out there who, you know, the, it's kind of the classic YC line, make something people want. There's also just so much lore in Silicon Valley that if you make the prettiest app, 
like you'll win. But that's just not how financial services work. Like you don't you don't really get the like word of mouth advantages and stuff like that with with financial products that you could get with like a cool new social app. There's no there's not really network effects in most of finance. There's not really you don't really get virality in most of finance. And most of what's been built in fintech over the last 10 years is not really tech. It's more fin. Like you, There's not much of a technology differentiation that you can use for defensibility in fintech as well, at least not in a lot of it, which means that the whole game is how you acquire customers and if whether or not you can do so more cheaply and at scale relative to your competition. And... The crazy thing about finance in particular is like your competition just has such an incredible scale advantage. I can't tell you how many founders I've talked to over the years that thought that like, oh, millennials hate their banks, so Chase is going to go away. I'm like, you've lost your damn mind if you think Chase is going anywhere. Like the the scale advantage and the cost of capital advantage are worth so much more than anybody really gives them credit for. And one of the things that Sheila and I both found, Sheila, my partner in Better Tomorrow Adventures, that we found over the years is a lot of people building these companies and a lot of people investing in these companies just don't fundamentally understand the business models and where the strategic advantages in financial services companies tend to come from. There's plenty of people out there that do and are doing a fantastic job, but there's also a ton of investors out there writing checks at crazy valuations into crazy companies that just don't fundamentally we don't get the sense they really understand what they're investing in. They're investing in these as if they're just like consumer tech apps when we think the finance side of things is so much more, so much more than just kind of the consumer front end. So distribution, it's one of the big ones. And then, yeah, the incumbent's ability to compete and the advantages that they have and the unlikelihood that a small startup can overcome some of those are things that we keep going back to. I think a big one, obviously, in our space in the public markets is, is simply Vanguard, where they're just like this enormous Death Star or Amoeba, depending yeah. on your perspective, that's just, you know, consuming everything. And, and rightfully so. I mean, that's a great product that's really hard to compete at when you're at three basis points. Fintechs are saying, well, let's do this at 50. Well, that's a tough competition. So as you look around the world today, let's start chatting about some of the opportunities and feel free to use any portfolio companies as case studies if you like. But but what are some of the, the spots that you guys personally over the last five years have been interested in? And then we'll look to the horizon too on, on spots you think there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. So I'd say one of our overall themes is that we think that the next 10 years of fintech is going to look very different from the previous 10 years. So the previous 10 years, roughly, has essentially been like, let's take all the existing financial services that we know, like kind of go line item by line item down the income statement of every financial institution and create a bunch of startups in that space. So you had your life insurance companies, your auto insurance companies, your neobanks, you had your robo advisors, you had your personal lenders everything, anything you can imagine, we basically just created like an online version. And that's really all it was. It was like, let's take an existing business model and put it online. Very similar to what happened when the internet was first getting off, right? Like it was very hard, very expensive, took a long time to start an internet company. And so a lot of what was happening was let's take an existing business and just put it on the web. Let's take a bookstore, let's take a pet store, let's take a grocery store or whatever, just put it online, let's take the yellow pages, put it online and just copy the business model, but give it a different form of distribution. And that's exactly what's been happening in FinTech over the last 10 years. Personal lenders, SMB lenders, robo-advisors, every type of insurance you can imagine, basically anything in personal finance. I'm very consumer focused here, as you can tell, <laughs> but the same thing's kind of happening on the B2B side. 
all of these have essentially just been like, let's copy what already exists and put it online or let's put it in a mobile app. But just like what happened with the internet, that's now led to people going on to create new companies, like kind of the next layer of, all right, let's build infrastructure and let's build tools that would have solved a lot of the problems we dealt with when we were building that first wave of companies. So now we're starting to see all this crazy stuff. Like I shouldn't say crazy. We're seeing all this really interesting stuff. Uh, Banking as a service platforms. We're seeing like, loan servicing as a service. We're seeing underwriting as a service, KYC as a service, like fraud prevention as a service. There's all kinds of identity stuff out there now. You name it. There's like investment platforms, like basically robo-advisors as a service. (laughs) Everything is being built now. Like all the different layers of the stack are being API-ified in a way that they weren't previously. So we think that's going to open up a lot of opportunity going forward. So that's not only going to make it easier to build a lot of these fintech apps, which is both a blessing and a curse. So it means that that's why there's a thousand neo banks out there now that all look exactly the same. But at the same time, it, it means that you have a lot more flexibility, a lot more freedom to innovate and experiment when you can build something in a few months that used to take a few years. And when you can build it for less than half a million dollars when it used to take five to $10 million. And so we think that's going to lead to a like fundamental disruption and what kinds of financial products are available, what kinds of user experiences are available, distribution models, business models, you name it. We're not creative enough to know what that is, but the founders will find it, will find them as kind of our thinking. Then we also think there's an opportunity here where basically companies that don't look like fintech companies today can start to become fintech companies because they can start to leverage this infrastructure to integrate financial services into their other products. So then, you know, I said before, fintech has not been tech, it's just been fin, basically. Well, now you can start building tech platforms that actually have marketplace effects, network effects, maybe some virality, they have some tech defensibility, like a real tech product, but then monetize it through financial services, or maybe get some sort of distribution advantage or something like that, depending on what the product is and and what the financial angle is. And once you tie that all together, you get like very different user experiences, very different access points, different distribution, different data advantages around the products that you've built. And you can just fundamentally change the business models as well, like business models that previously weren't accessible in terms of kind of niche marketplaces or something become a lot more accessible and a lot more scalable or like higher margin and much bigger businesses once you can start to involve financial services. And we've seen a bunch of the big companies do this already. So Uber has Uber money, Flexport has Flexport Capital, Airbnb is obviously involved in a bunch of different types of financial products, Shopify has a lending arm. But what we're seeing now is that because of all this infrastructure, we now have pre-seed and seed stage companies coming to us who on day zero are saying fintech is going to be a big part of my model and they have the capability to build that now. So that's kind of how we see the world having evolved the last 10 years and how it's going to develop over the next 10 years. Obviously, we're very involved in a lot of the stuff that happened in the last five or 10 years. Yeah, We did a lot of investing in consumer insurance. We've done a lot of kind of B2B products selling into insurance companies, insurance brokers, banks, you name it. Like all the things that I was just talking about, we were heavily involved in. But we think the next wave is going to look very different. All right. Well, let's start to talk about the next wave. And you can either outline any current companies or just broad ideas. What are some of the more specific niches or ideas that really got you excited, interested in, wanting to fund? So the companies that we're investing in now are just too early. I don't, I don't want to step out of line and, and call them out by name. But in terms of themes, like some stuff that we've seen interest, 
seen recently that we really like banking as a service is going to be a big one. There's a few companies out there working on stuff like that now with the idea being like integrate into a a bank on the back end, do all the kind of hairy work of building the APIs down into their core, into their banking core systems, but then provide APIs for things like KYC, AML, fraud prevention, issuing debit cards, provisioning bank accounts, and then potentially even lending on top of that. So that other tech platforms like gig worker marketplaces, for example, can start to issue white label bank accounts, similar to what Uber does with kind of the prepaid debit cards for their drivers. Like imagine if you could just start issuing bank accounts and debit cards and then using the data from all that to do kind of working capital lines of credit and things like that, but specifically targeted towards, you know, you as a platform are able to start issuing that stuff in a white label format to the users of your platform. So that's that's the theme that we think is really cool. We think that you know, this kind of this idea of embedded fintech is going to get really interesting in the years to come. There's some other stuff. We've seen similar types of things like an insurance. Actually, what company I can't talk about, they're, they're public, it's called Ledger, I think can start to fit into the stack at some point where they're effectively a securitization platform for kind of basically PNC risk. So right now we have the insurance link security market, ILS market. It's primarily large contracts focused on catastrophic risks traded between hedge funds and reinsurance companies. But imagine if you could take that same idea and bring it down to kind of smaller packages of kind of consumer and commercial insurance where you can standardize it, securitize it, and then you don't need to have this kind of cumbersome stack of like reinsurance with insurance with brokers and agents on top of it and everything very much a risk silo with with lots of correlated risk on there as well. Like if you think about kind of California fire risk or like Florida or Texas hurricane risk or something in your homeowner's books, for example, like insurance is regulated on a state by state basis. And so you end up with these kind of silos of risk that tend to be overly correlated. So imagine if you could just as a broker price the risk and sell it off to the open market at a much more kind of market price versus whatever the the reinsurance company or whatever the carrier wants to charge and then give you a lot more i guess give the reinsurers and the hedge funds or whatever a lot more room to just be asset managers in a sense and then give the you know allow the carriers to be much more capital efficient and kind of thinner in a sense, like really play up this model, this MGA model that a lot of the insure techs have been built on over the last few years. Should give you a lot more flexibility to underwrite and and package up risk much more cheaply and much more scalably. This idea has such a, a large potential. And we as an asset manager, the insurance link space and catastrophe bond space is this really fantastic, quote, asset class, not really an asset class, but more of an active strategy, a transfer of risk where you could invest in securities, like you mentioned, that insure against the risk of hurricanes or earthquakes in Japan or even pandemics, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, for a large part, often not correlated with each other and, and, and many other things. So from the end investor standpoint, it's pretty interesting, but, it, but it's not particularly liquid. It's a bit complicated. We, we had considered trying to see if we, there was any possible way to do it as an open-ended fund, and, and there's not really much... There's one group that does it, and I'm blanking on the name. It's called like Stone Ridge or something that does a mutual fund. But Ledger is so is their business model like business to business? How, how, what, what is their sort of concept? Yeah, it's essentially like an institutional marketplace. They're effectively brokering the risk from. So you have like a specialty insurance broker on one side that's selling like call it commercial auto or life or could be just be like a package of consumer auto insurance or homeowners insurance or renters insurance, like any kind of 
any kind of like commercial or consumer PNC insurance. And then effectively the brokers would underwrite that risk and then through the ledger platform, they would sell it to carriers, reinsurers, hedge funds, anybody that wanted to invest in it. And to your point, like it's highly uncorrelated risk. Well, for the most part, it's uncorrelated. What's interesting right now is like clearly pandemic, you know, if we're thinking of catastrophic risk, like pandemics and markets are, are correlated. And interestingly enough, like pandemics and auto insurance are negatively correlated. <laughs> like loss ratios and auto insurance have basically gone to zero this year. But you can think about like if you were a giant reinsurance company managing you know, tens of billions of dollars of assets, like being able to invest some of it in like consumer auto over here and homeowners over here and so on and so forth and not kind of be stuck into the same kind of pipelines through your carrier relationships that they do now, you get a lot more diversification. And even for, you know, high net worth individuals, family offices or whatever, like you could potentially use something like this as part of your cash management strategy or something where you can earn like low double digit returns with no kind of strict market risk. Double digit returns sound attractive to people right now with US sure. bonds and the, the 1% range. It's a very cool world and concept. I hope they figure it out. I certainly do. Yeah. <laughs> what else you got your brain on? Any other kind of specific ideas or ones that you wish someone would tackle that, that currently are not? Yeah, so other areas that we're really interested in, we're looking a lot at international markets. So like Latin America, Africa, maybe even Southeast Asia, we think there's still a lot of where there's not as much low hanging fruit in terms of financial services products here in the US, we think there's still plenty of opportunity overseas. When you put together like, young populations, digitally native, increasingly educated, increasingly wealthy, but no, like very little financial infrastructure to support them. We think there's going to be a lot of opportunity in spaces like that. And so we've made an investment out of the new fund that's in Mexico City, that we're really excited about. You mentioned earlier the the challenge of the incumbents, you know, of of like a chase and the challenge of fighting those. You know, what what is the big reason that a Square, Plaid, or any of these Stripe firms wouldn't move in to big opportunities of Latin America or Africa? What's what's sort of the thinking there? Is it governmental? Is it what's the big opportunity? Sure. I mean, I can't speak to the actual roadmaps of any of those companies, but I don't I don't think they won't necessarily. I think there's plenty of opportunity for them to move into those spaces. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's not opportunity for for new entrants. But I'd also say that anybody who starts in America is going to tend to spend a lot more time in America than overseas because we're the biggest market. So you're you're seeing it with a lot of the neobanks and stuff now. There's some that's you know, new bank started in Brazil, Monzo and N26, and a few of those other companies started in Europe. And all of them are starting to look at the U.S. as their next market because they've basically saturated the markets that they're in. I think I re- read recently that something like I'm going to screw up the numbers, but I want to say something like 60 percent of bank holder, like bank account holders in the U.K. have neobank accounts now. So, like, where do you go from there? <laughs> you go to the U.S. So anybody who started in the U.S., probably still has a long way to go before they have that kind of market share and is often, you know, they have to make hard decisions about how much time and resources they're going to put into moving overseas versus staying in the U.S. That said, like companies like Stripe and Square are at a scale where it does make sense. And Jack famously last year was talking about moving to Africa for a while and looking at that market. So I'm sure they will at some point, but I think there's plenty of, I mean, the company that we invested in in Mexico City is a 
you're going to start to notice a theme here. It's a parametric earthquake insurance company. And so that's just not something that anybody in the U.S. is particularly focused on and was up until a few weeks ago, very top of mind in Mexico. How'd that one cross your plate? Was it just network, friends of friends, people reaching out cold? What's the typical process there? Generally, so Shield spends a lot of time overseas talking at conferences, going to events and things like that. He knows founders and investors all over the world, and he tends to be our our lead on anything international. But in this particular case, it was a founder who was the head of product at another one of our portfolio companies. At this point, between 500 FinTech and my angel portfolios, we have something like 160 portfolio companies already. And so we see a lot of things like this. He was a VP of product at another one of our portfolio companies, and he left to move back to Mexico where his family is and decided to start an insurance company in Mexico. And we were his first call. There's an area, I think you were actually talking with Shio about this somewhere, and you can correct me if I'm misinterpreting. I heard you say something along the lines of, there's a big challenge with personal finance and investing education, you know, and, and whether it was an insurmountable problem or just did no good. What are your thoughts on trying to educate? Because we don't teach it in high school. It's like 10% of schools or something. It's a, it's a constant thing I bemoan about. What are your thoughts there? And is it an opportunity at all? You know, having ran a consumer-focused, essentially fintech education site, what's your big thoughts? My view is largely that maybe there's some education that's necessary, but at the end of the day, none of us don't know we need to eat more broccoli, right? The ch- Or maybe some of us do, but for, look, that's not the problem. <laughs> the biggest problem is not that we need to be educated on what foods are healthy and what foods aren't healthy. The biggest problem is compliance. And it's the same thing in finance. I think finance and health are very similar. And there's a lot of reasons why that is. Like the industries are set up to take advantage of our psychologies and make these things difficult for us. A big part of the thesis behind NerdWallet was like, you should never believe bank marketing because they are 100% set up to take advantage. Like they make the products as confusing as possible and then make the advertising seem like it's easy in order to get you to sign up for like a 5% cashback rewards card when you're going to be paying 30 a year in interest, which obviously is not in your best interest. So my view is basically that it's compliance that's hard. And there's plenty of companies and founders who've tried over the last five or 10 years to help that, like create these good looking apps that help people stay on top of their budgets or let you know kind of how you're doing against your goals when it comes to paying down your debt or whatever. But they've always kind of struggled to hit real scale because engagement is just so difficult. Like you, you'll acquire a customer super cheap in the early days because it's the early adopters that all want to try the new, new thing. They'll play around with it for a few weeks. And then once they get a sense, they'll just churn or they'll, they'll just stop using it. And, and all these products are monetizing through or all of these apps are monetizing through referrals to financial products. So if you're not engaging, they can't refer you to anything and they're not making any money. And then it was so easy to build a product like this. There ended up being hundreds of them, essentially just front ends on top of Plaid. And and now cost of acquisition is just through the roof. And so basically it's just hard to get people to keep coming back and keep engaging them. So one of the things Sheila and I talk about a lot is that, and, and this is kind of, you know, NerdWallet's kind of following the same path. Like we started by just doing content. We were effectively like Money Magazine, right? You know, it was just, it was mostly content. We'd help you make the right decisions. We'd point you in the right direction and send you on your way. But that required a lot of work. And there's only a certain subset of the population that's willing to do that work. 
So we've even started moving more and more towards, all right, well, we'll give you a product to like give you more insights that are personalized to you. And then the future is we should just be able to do that for you. Like rather than telling you what the best credit card is, or like rather than giving you the tools to figure out what the best credit card is, or rather than giving you the tools to figure out what the best loans are for you, or just telling you like, hey, maybe you should have a lower rate on your student loans or something. We should just go out and do the research automatically and just refi you. Or we should kind of automatically be pulling money from your deposits and paying off loans in an optimal way, putting money in emergency savings, putting money in your you know, Wealthfront, Acorns, 401k, whatever, IRA, and doing that in an automated way so that you, you at the end of the day, just kind of get a second pay stub <laughs> that says, this is how much disposable cash you have. And just kind of take a lot of that friction away from the, away from the consumer. Do you think we are from that? Because you've seen some of the robos and, and people do what you're talking about, which is, you know, in many ways, a lot of this is what a true fiduciary financial advisor should be doing, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's not automated, certainly. And, and certainly software could take over mo- most of the role. The problem you have so much is most of the world is still not fiduciary. And also that some of the fintech startup, you see the problem that you mentioned because of the cost, they start to creep into areas that aren't in the customer's best interest, whether they admit it or not. And I've seen it multiple times already where it's just like, that is clearly a monetization effort, not in the consumer's best interest. How far are we away from that actually kind of happening? Yeah, I think we still got a ways to go. I I couldn't put an actual time on it, but I know a bunch of companies that are working on different parts of this in interesting ways, and hopefully it'll start to congeal and and we'll start to see more movement here. But I have a portfolio company called Astra that's automating a lot of the money movement stuff, but they're doing it and it's more focused on power users to begin with, but it can kind of adapt over time. Like If you think of it as like Zapier or if this, then that for moving money between your different accounts, like you could set up your own rules like I want 5% of my paycheck to go to this account. I want 3% to go to this account. I want 2% to go to this account every single time I get a paycheck. The, you set up those rules and then they'll automatically manage the, the money movement for you. And they have much more kind of complicated routines that you can design than that. But like that's an easy example. There's a company called Northstar that's also trying to do a lot of this automation. They're working on that kind of pay stub idea that I mentioned to you where using kind of machine learning to analyze your spending, to analyze your bills, to analyze your debt. And then whenever you get paid, they'll kind of figure out the best places to put all the money and then let you know what your disposable income is. And they're offering that as a kind of financial wellness benefit to employers to then give to their employees. So that's Northstar. One of my portfolio companies, Grove, was trying to do tech-based financial planning, like what you were just talking about, kind of as a fiduciary, helping you figure all this stuff out through technology. They ended up selling to Wealthfront and are now running Wealthfront's kind of self-driving money initiatives. There's an interesting idea in there that I think the landscape could shift. It's more of a regulatory barrier up till now is that you couldn't have the discovery in financial advisors is tough because you can't do testimonials. So you can never have recommendations. You can never say this guy is an absolute idiot. You know, so there's no like ZocDoc for financial advisors, but but recent rumblings has been they're going to lift that. I would love to see a lot more transparency and disinfectant in that world because I think I don't know the exact business model is because it, it gets a lot you paying for leads 
with testimonials is currently illegal, obviously, but someone will eventually figure it out. <laughs> so if you, if you ever find anyone that, that does it, let me know. I would certainly invest, but there's certainly some opportunity there because it's so opaque with so many people with the world still being most most of the relationships being non-fiduciary, which already right there yeah. is, is, is a tough, tough spot to be in. You were a Alto IRA investor too? Was that, was that you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They should have been in the last podcast we'll publish by the time this comes out. We just had the founders <laughs> on to talk about it. So it should be in, in the right linear order. Are there any other areas that you think are, you just haven't seen a company do it yet that you'd really love to? You know, for, for me, I was looking last night, I was starting to do my taxes with TurboTax, which is like, you know, still <laughs> like the most frustrating thing. Yeah. And I couldn't even download them. I couldn't even get a picture of like how it's looked through the years. There seems to be a lot of opportunity. Any other areas where you're, you're, you're like a call to entrepreneurs out there that you wish it's a good idea that you wish someone would be doing? Because I have terrible ideas I could talk about for hours. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm usually not the creative one that comes up with the ideas. Like I, I see the problems and then hopefully there's founders working on smart ways to, to solve them that have there help. been any others that have just banged you on the head where you're like, wow, that is fascinating or a really cool idea that I just hadn't really considered or you think is a much better approach to the to the fintech landscape? Anything come to mind? You know, I have seen some like kind of off the wall stuff lately that I'm just not sure if it'll work and haven't figured out what the right approach is and all this other stuff. But you know, there's I'm at a company recently that is doing it's basically like lending to help people get their 401k match. So it's, you know, employers offer this 401k match. It's effectively free money, but not a lot of people are able to take advantage of it because they're not putting enough money in their 401k. It's not a model that really works as stated, <laughs> or at least I'm not convinced that it'll it'll work that way. But I thought it was just like so off the wall. You know, it was one of these things that was like, it's just so crazy. It might just work. I actually spent some time on it. But like, that's the kind of out of the box thinking that I would like to hear more of from founders. I had another founder recently who wanted to start basically like the new credit union, which on the face of it just kind of seems like, oh, it's just another neobank by another name. But when you spend more time thinking about it, there's actually a lot of interesting differences in credit unions that don't really exist for banks. Like it's another model that's really hard to get off the ground and may or may not work. But I do think there, like there's a lot of value in credit unions and credit unions are never going to adapt technologically to, to this new world. So maybe there's a way to create, you know, credit unions 2.0. And there's obviously an audience out there for it, giving all the people voting for Bernie. So <laughs> I think that there's, there's gotta be something to that as well, like in a community-based banking or affiliation-based banking, where the kind of benefits accrue back to the to the end users. You know, Lemonade actually kind of started out this way as well as a mutual, or like originally their idea was to be an insurance mutual. I think they kind of pivoted away from that, but I think there's something to that where like the your customers own the company in a way, and like the benefits accrue back to them instead of just shareholders. I think we'll start to see more and more stuff along those lines and maybe eventually we figure out a way to do it with technology. But 
so the new fund, you guys exist mostly in the sort of pre-seed, seed, series A. What's what's its check size? What are you guys looking yeah. for? Talk to us a little bit about your opportunity there. Yeah, so we're pre-seed and seed exclusively focused on leading deals. We want to be writing something like half million to one and a half million dollar checks being the primary, if not the only institutional investor and around. We have a little bit of flexibility there to co-lead with, with some of our friends in the industry. But for the most part, like the types of companies that we look at, we would be in position to be that primary institutional relationship. And that's basically the gist of it. I mean, very broad based in fintech or our, our kind of tongue in cheek thesis since the beginning has been everything is fintech. So if you play out this embedded fintech idea and how essentially any company has the opportunity to eventually monetize through financial services thing like that. Our mandate is actually quite broad. <laughs> so we I have a couple of my angel investments warehoused into the fund. There's a trucking company. There's a company in there that's a trucking software company, I should say. There's a company in there that's software for landlords, random stuff like that, but we'll be able to monetize through financial services over time. And, and, and I imagine it has a pretty traditional VC structure now that you're a VC. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you still plan on syndicating AngelList or other sort of investments as well? Is this totally fund related? And then would also love to hear about the AngelList experience as a syndicate lead too. Yeah, 100% focused on the fund now. The only thing that I'll, the only stuff that I'll do on AngelList going forward would be if any of my current AngelList portfolio companies raise another round or I can get allocation, I would offer the pro rata to the existing AngelList LPs. But I won't be doing any new investments through AngelList. It's more just kind of managing the existing portfolio. And then I guess my experience with AngelList has been, it's a great way to kind of get leverage as an angel investor and kind of practice playing VC, which is the way that I looked at it. It has its positives and its negatives. Like it's, it makes things very easy for you. I don't have to kind of manage the back office or anything like that, which I just wouldn't be capable of doing as an individual anyway. You know, they've got a great marketplace of capital there. But at the same time, not having a dedicated set of LPs means that it's hard to do these types of SPVs. You know, it's hard for me to go to a founder and say, you know, I want to invest 250K or half a million dollars in your company. But like, give me a couple of weeks to figure out <laughs> if I can actually fill that or not, because I haven't actually found any real like I've had some deals that like oversubscribed immediately, some deals that took me weeks to basically pull teeth to get them filled. And it's not always obvious what's going to put one company in one bucket versus another. Like the the investors on AngelList just tend to be fickle. So if you look back at you, I, I think I heard you say you've done over 100 private investments at this point. Is that right? I've done about 90. And then we ran the 500 FinTech fund before this, which invested in another 75 or so companies. Talk to me for just a moment about, you know, the challenge with angel and venture capital often is that so much of your returns are dominated, and this is public markets too, so much of your returns are dominated by the big outliers and, you know, the the hundred baggers or, or more. If you go back and look at your investments or your experiences, is it a situation that you go back and look at them and, and from the get-go, it was obvious your conviction at the time, the ones that became the big winners? Was it somewhat random? How has it played out over the past almost decade? I mean, there's there's a ton of uncertainty in all of this. It's always really hard to know which ones are going to be the best ones. It's, 
The way that I've thought about it is my goal as an angel was to build a network. It was to invest in a lot of companies, relatively small dollar amounts into any individual company and build out a pretty expansive network and learn a lot and learn as much as possible. So being involved in companies just across every sector that I'm interested in, basically. And over time, your deal flow starts to improve, or like in theory, if you're doing your job correctly, your 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 deal flow should improve over time. You should get access to better and better stuff. And then you just start to like narrow your aperture. It wasn't until I really felt like that had happened or was happening that I would have felt comfortable raising a fund. You know, now I feel like I've seen enough both through the 500 FinTech experience and through my own angel portfolio to have a pretty good sense once I spend a couple hours with a founder and you know, kind of have the, you know, we always talk about the prepared mind around certain ideas. Now that I've seen enough of it, I feel like I have a pretty good sense when I meet a new company of what my interest level is going to be. You, you learn little things along the way all the time, like how important it is that you just, it not only has to feel like a good kind of financial opportunity, but this is a founder you're going to be working with very closely for a long time. So like you have to evaluate that too. Like, am I going to sit across from this person every week for an hour and help them build this company? And am I also going to give a shit about this idea <laughs> enough to put in the effort to help this founder build this company? So if it's something that's like, yeah, that obviously is going to make a lot of money, but I don't care about bringing that idea into the world. It's just not something that I get out of bed for in the morning. You know, that's probably a red flag. It's probably not something you should invest in. Or like if a founder rubs you the wrong way in some way, then that's probably not something you want to invest in. And these are things that you kind of pick up on as you over time as you learn more and more and again can kind of start to narrow your focus how's this this year changed things in the world of fintech and and investing and vc and everything else any major takeaways other than we're doing this from your couch in my bedroom <laughs> yeah so i think just in terms of investing in general if you know somebody just kind of threw a match on a powder keg and we're still waiting for the dust to clear before anybody can really start to the analogy that I heard recently was like, you know, we're still putting out the fire and only then can we assess the damage and then start planning for the future. And I still feel like the uncertainty level is high enough that that's, that's very much the case. I'm not going to make any kind of strong judgments on what the world's going to look like six months from now. Although one thing that's been really interesting that we've seen in all sectors, but FinTech has been kind of one that's been affected really strongly by this is, like overnight digital transformation. You know, we've been talking about, uh, you know, technology has been kind of slowly creeping into every industry for the last, call it 10, 15, 20 years now, uh, or, or definitely since the famous Mark Andreessen Wall Street Journal article, op-ed, whatever. It's the software eating the world thing is kind of, it's it's been slowly creeping in out there. And FinTech is one of the more recent kind of examples of that is like software is kind of slowly creeping into into finance or at least kind of consumer facing finance. But now all of a sudden overnight, like that's just been accelerated. Like our kids are learning on Zoom now. My mom's accounting firm just adopted Slack and Dropbox and bought laptops for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Like we're seeing all, all of these different companies and all these different industries just overnight have to figure their shit out and like move everything to the cloud, start using collaboration software, all this other stuff. And then it's happening in FinTech too. From talking to some of our portfolio companies, Things like, you know, digital banking is kind of finally seeing its day because all these like bank branches aren't open right now and they're closing a lot of them permanently. Just like 
with the push of a button, basically. <laughs> and so digital banking is going to become more and more important going forward. Like contactless payments, digital payments, mobile payments are definitely going to be accelerated from here on out. Anything that required kind of a human touch to sell, like a lot of insurance, like life insurance, for example. Life insurance is very top of mind for people right now. And at the same time, like most life insurance is sold by like talking to an agent face to face. And then they'll often even do like a physical exam on you. Well, that's not happening right now. So companies like Ethos and Ladder and Bestow and stuff like that that do fully online life insurance are having some of their best months ever right now. And we're seeing that in a bunch of different types of insurance as well, because the traditional agent model is kind of breaking down. They're just not set up to sell insurance 100% online, but they have to now because people are just sitting at home buying insurance or signing up for credit cards or getting loans. But what's the, what's the credit card noir? You got a, you got a Brex, you got a Chase from the, the nervous so, founder. Come on, you got to give us the goods. So Shield makes fun of me because of the credit cards that are in my wallet, especially given my background as a nerd wallet founder. So Chase hates me and refuses to give me any other premium credit cards. I have been rejected for a Chase Sapphire Reserve every time I've implied for the past like three years. And I'm like, it's even funnier with Chase because like I worked for you for six years. I've been a customer of yours for something like 20 years. I was also one of your biggest distributors for about four years. <laughs> why, why do you get rejected? <laughs> I've signed up for too many Chase credit cards over the years. And there's always a different, it's like, there's the 524 rule they called me out on. And then it was like, we can't give you the Sapphire Reserve because you had a you, you got a Sapphire preferred four years ago or something. Every six months, I'll go back and apply again to see if, if they've relaxed the, the rules or, or if I've kind of run out the time period, but it never works. And then even like, I tried to get their premium United credit card and they rejected me for it and just gave me the regular United credit card. I can't remember. There's a few. Other, so I have like a United credit card. I have the the Marriott Bonvoy that I've had. It used to be the SPG card. I've had that for a million years. My business card is actually a ramp card because they're a portfolio company of mine, similar to Brex. Don't I was laughing that. when I saw Brex hit such a rocket ship valuation because their their name and logo looks nearly identical to one of the biggest stock frauds of all time, which was Brex, <laughs> which was a mining company. And I saw that. I'm like, are you guys, no one stopped to think that this was a terrible idea, but whatever. I have, I have not heard that. What, what company was this? Look up Brex. And the story is fascinating too. There's a lot of sort of cloak and dagger. People died in like helicopter oh, crashes geez. and stuff. It was one of the biggest frauds of all time. I think it was Canadian, but it was it was like a gold mining company. Anyway, it, it, look it up. It's it's a fun. It's like a Silk Road style story. Just it's like wow. too crazy to believe. Looking back on the career so far, not including NerdWallet, what's been your most memorable investment? I mean, it could be that computer. What what was your first computer you started coding on? By the way, was it Commodore sixty four? Uh, no, I mean like literally. The first computers I was playing around with, it was just parts that I cobbled together. It's like take a motherboard and stick some RAM in it, stick a video card on it and put it in a white box or like a beige box. My first computer didn't have a hard drive. I was booting everything off of a five and a quarter inch DOS floppy to play my video games and run WordPerfect and stuff like that. QBasic. So yeah, I don't even know if it had a brand on it, to be honest with you. I, I never had one of the, I didn't have the Apple II or the Commodore 64 or any of the stuff that was, like some of my friends had them and I'd go over there and play all like amazing video games and loved them. But I was always just bare bones. <laughs> so, so on the investment side, nothing comes to mind. Even your trading 
interest rate. What were you trading? Interest rate futures in the banking days? Yeah, it was a little bit of everything. I was trading swaps, euro dollar futures, options, you know, swaptions and euro dollar future options, a lot of that stuff. Didn't have all your retirement money in JP Morgan stock in the financial crisis. Yeah, even worse. Like all of my liquid assets were in the stock market because I was only 25 years old or whatever. And so, like, why wouldn't I have all my money in the stock market? And then half of my net worth was in unvested JP Morgan stock, and I was getting paid. I was joking. I, I didn't mean for that to come home to, to so close to home. <laughs> yeah, you learn a lot of lessons in a, in a seat like that. I learned a lot about correlated risk and leverage. Because, yeah, 2008 was the year that basically none of us got paid, and I almost got laid off, and I lost at least half of my money. So <laughs> I'd also recently bought my mom a house in Florida. That's the best type of investment, the one you can't sell if you wanted to. <laughs> Yeah, especially when they go down 50 or 60% in value. <laughs> Where do people go? They want to find more out about your fun, what you're up to. Where's the best places? Twitter is probably the best place these days. I tend to be pretty engaged on Twitter. It's like the only social media stuff that I do. Well, add it to the show notes. What's the handle? I am Jake Stream. Got it. What's the story behind that? <laughs> you know, it's... That handle's 10 years old, and I think I loosely borrowed it from Fight Club. Yeah, there you go. When your name's Jake, like your name is always taken when you join something new, and so I always come up with weird things. Well, man, look, it's been fun. Thanks for taking the time out of your quarantine. I'll let you get back to whatever craziness that's engulfing you in your world, but thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.